You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Ben de la Vida is the author of nonfiction works that include The Believer Book of Writers Talking to Writers and Girls on the Verge, and the novels And Now You Can Go and Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name. Her new novel is The Lovers. Thank you for joining me, Vendela. Thank you for having me. Vendela, one of the most fascinating aspects of this novel, and it took me a while to twig to this, is that we meet the main character, Yvonne, when she's completely out of her normal environment, yet she's returned to a place that's familiar to her. And I think the sense of displacement as a means of just introducing us to a character is really an interesting choice. Thank you. Well, that was something I did in my last book as well. I think that was one thing I was worried ner- readers would notice that in my last book, and Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, it starts on the first page with a character arriving at the Helsinki airport. And in this book, in The Lovers, Yvonne arrives at the Dalaman Airport in southwestern Turkey uh, on the very first page. And I realize, you know what, that's fine. I like having my characters arrive in, in airports at the beginnings of books. I think it sends a message to the reader that they are about to embark on an adventure. That is to say, the protagonist is about to embark on an adventure and be out of her normal surroundings. And I love reading plays. Um, I really love the fact that plays always start at the last possible moment, and I think that's why I, I like to start with an arrival. You know, you'll notice in plays, you don't get a lot of background information at the very beginning. Someone walks into a room and says, you'll never believe what just happened out there, and boom, the play starts. And so I try to do the same thing with both novels. You know, as a reader, one of the things that I like to do is if there are books that are, you know, somewhat tangentially associated with a book or that an author has had in mind uh, when he or she writes a book, I I will, you know, try to read that book first. Um, You know, you can read The Odyssey before you read uh, um, Ulysses. Right. Or in this case, uh, there's a novel called, or a autobiographical novel called The Lovers by Marguerite Duras. Yes. And, and that has some tangential relation to this book, doesn't uh, it? It does very much so. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for being such a diligent reader. I read that book when I was maybe halfway through this writing this book. No, I would say a quarter of the way writing through um, writing The Lovers. And the reason I read it was because when I was taking notes on the main character, Yvonne, I was doing all creating all sorts of exercises for myself. I was thinking, what kind of books would this woman bring with her on vacation? You know, you do all this kind of background information, most of which never ends up making it into the book. You know, for example, I went to Burlington, Vermont, where she's from, and took pictures of the house I thought she might live in. I went to the high school where I thought she might have taught and you know, noticed that it was by a cemetery. And I started thinking, well, would her students have gone there during lunchtime to get stoned? You know, all these things that don't even never make it into the book, but I felt that they were important things for me to know about her as a character. And so getting back to the Marguerite Duras book, I took some notes about what kind of novels I thought Yvonne would bring with her on this trip to Turkey. And one of the first books that occurred to me was The Lover by Marguerite Duras. And I was thinking that, too, is also about a woman who is looking back at her life and her love. And 
she, in the Marguerite Duval book, the woman is much older than Yvonne. Yvonne is 53 years old. But I still thought there was something that they shared in common about uh, women looking back on their on their lives and kind of looking over you know, past mistakes they might have made and and also joys and pleasures of their earlier lives. You know, the the age and the position of the character in this novel is, I, I think of Yvonne, is really, really interesting because I don't think we get, uh, I, I haven't read many novels uh, where you have a parent who has an, an adult child, and I think the relationships between parents and adult child children are really fascinating, and I love the way that they're unveiled in this book. It's very Onion-like. Thank you. Yes, it was. Yvonne is 15 years older than I am, and so that was a little bit of a of an experiment for me to try writing from the perspective of someone who's older. Actually, I wasn't writing from her perspective. I was writing about her in the third person, which is also something new for me. I've never written in the third person before for a novel-length book. But I was really fascinated, too, about her relationship with, with her children, and, and that's something readers have talked to me a lot about, too, because... They, you know, I've had lots of readers come up to me and say, it's so interesting, and you'll find this as a mom. I have a one-year-old and a four-year-old, so I'm, you know, I'm far, from, far away from having grown-up kids. But they'll say, the, one, the kid that you often worry about the most is the one that ends up being fine, and the one that you think is going to be just fine is the one you end up worrying about once they reach their 20s. And I've always been interested in, in the changes, and as a parent, how your job just gets more challenging and, and more unpredictable. You never know which child is going to cause you the most grief or the most joy. or you know, And it could be the one that causes the most grief also is the one that you're closest to as well. It doesn't mean that there's, you know, one child follows one path and the other child follows another. But I really wanted her kids to also be in their early 20s so they haven't quite figured things out exactly. They're still dependent on her but also at the same time want to be free of her. So I think that's a, a very interesting predicament of of young people in their 20s. They're, they're really struggling because they're not completely financially free, but they, they want to be emotionally free and, and they want to be free career-wise from their parents. And, and the reverse to a certain extent is true too, that the parents at, at, this, at this stage in their life might say, well, it, it's time for you to take care of yourself emotionally and, and economically. Exactly. Um, that's something else I've noticed even among my own friends that, I think the age at which kids are cut off from their parents varies dramatically. I have some friends who, once they went to college, their parents have converted their bedrooms at home into offices. And I have other friends who, even though they're now parents themselves, have just moved back in with their parents because of financial, um, situ- you know, financial struggles or whatever other reasons. So I think it can really vary from family to family. One of the things that... that uh interests me uh, about this book is the setting Turkey. It's such a fascinating country. Could you talk about uh, making the choice to to send Yvonne there? Sure. Well, I set the book in Turkey completely by accident, (laughs) to be honest. I went there in 2005 with no intention of writing about the country. I'd always been intrigued by it, but I went there purely for selfish motives. I went there because I wanted to finish my last novel, Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, which is set in Lapland above the Arctic Circle in the winter time when there are only maybe two hours of sunlight a day, and those aren't even full hours of sunlight. They're you know kind of that's just when it's not dark. Two hours of non-darkness, and so I thought that Turkey in the summer sounded like a very good place to um, to finish to finish a book about the Arctic Circle. So I typed in four words into a search engine. I typed in Turkey, 
beach rental and cheap, and this house appeared, and it happened to be located in a town called Dacha, which I'd never heard of, but I located it on a map, and it looked very well positioned. It was right where the Aegean and the Mediterranean meet, and I thought, that sounds great. So my husband and I went there for a month of June, and I had a wonderful time there, I think in part because I was finishing a novel, which is always a good feeling to be done with something you've been working on for years. And I just remember it was a really golden time. And something strange happened when I sat down to write my next book. This town and this house we'd stayed in all began to present themselves in my mind. I had no intention of writing about them, but they kept appearing. And so I thought, okay, I think I need to go back because I hadn't taken any notes. So two years later, in 2007, I returned to southwestern Turkey with two friends this time. And I was completely shocked when I arrived in the town of Dacia. My friends were, too. They said, this is the town you told us so much about. This is why you lured us all the way here. It was definitely not as golden as I remembered. It was very, um, there were lots of signs of decay and a lot of hotels that had closed, a lot of for sale signs. Its blemishes seemed more pronounced and maybe not as attractive. Uh, it seemed a little rougher around the edges. And I was very disappointed at first. But then I thought, well, what kind of person, what kind of character in a novel would come back to a place they once visited and be very disappointed to find it wasn't as it once was. And so the town literally gave birth to this, I shouldn't say literally, gave birth to this um, character of Yvonne, who is a widow who once honeymooned in Dacha, and she is returning there 28 years later to kind of trace the, uh, the evolution of her marriage and kind of go back to the place where it started to see how it might have unraveled. And I also just love the fact that Turkey at the time, you know, in 2005 and 2007, still now, well, particularly in 2005, was um, was really kind of hurt. A lot of the people were very hurt because they had just been rejected from the EU. And I thought that was really interesting, just how this country was kind of a bridge between East and West. And in many ways, I feel like Iran is, you know, on her own bridge between being a married woman and trying to live life as a widow and trying to understand what that means. And so in many ways, the setting seemed very appropriate for her. You know, one of the things that I think is, is very interesting about this book is to look at it in, a, in place with your other two books, and now you can go and let the Northern Lights erase your name. They're, they seem to be, I wouldn't say they're necessarily a trilogy, and there's no story through line, but there's a, a certain, like a, I guess what I call a triptych to, uh, you know, this three different mirrors aimed at something like the same subject. I love that you just said the word triptych, and I should have been saying that all along. <laughs> we should have talked a long time ago. I, I did view the books as a trilogy in that they're, they're all about women who are experiencing um, moments of crisis in their lives. And in particular, they're all experiencing crisis in relation to acts of violence that have been directed either toward them or toward loved ones. And they're going through processes of forgiveness and how to forgive um, these acts of violence and get over these, these circumstances. And I, they aren't related. You're right. They don't have the same characters. They don't. They don't. You don't have to read one to understand another at all. Um, but I do like the idea of a triptych in the in the mirrors, kind of reflecting back on each other. Because I do. I did have the goal that once you read all three of them, they would add up to saying something larger than each one did individually about the process of grief, about the process of forgiveness. Um. 
Tell us a little bit about how some of your nonfiction work, I'm thinking Girls on the Verge, as well as your Believer book of writers talking to writers, informs your fiction. I mean, if you spend as much time as you clearly have talking to writers, your you know, co-editor and co-founding editor of the Believer magazine, um, uh, it, spending all that time talking to writers, talking to editors, and looking at the rituals of girls, um, how does that inform your writing? Well, I first wrote Girls on the Verge when I was in my 20s. It was actually came out of my graduate thesis at Columbia. And I spent years talking to young women about the rituals they were undergoing to prove to themselves and to others that they were no longer young adults, but actually adults. And I had to be honest, after spending so much time with these women and taking and going through all their files and having to quote them so, so, um, so true to their quotes, I really decided the next time I wrote a book, I was going to make everything up. Because sometimes when I was going through the transcripts of what these women had said, I would think, well, that's a good quote, but I wish she had just said it this way. Or wouldn't it be better for my, for my um, book and for my thesis if, if she had just maybe given this example? And so I, well, I, you know, I had a lot of regard for nonfiction writers. I just felt that for me it was time to take a break from, from nonfiction and from reporting and journalism and and really rely on fiction and, and using my imagination and being able to make up quotes because <laughs> that's what you do in fiction. And I feel with the Believer book of Writers Talking to Writers, which is a, is a book of interviews, that, some of which I conducted with writers like Shirley Hazard and Jennifer Egan, but also contains conversations between writers such as Zizi Packard and Edward P. Jones or Cornelia Nixon and Marilyn Robeson, I feel that it really helps me to write about, to read about other people's writing processes. They're all so different. They're all. What's so interesting to me about reading that book now, now that I can enjoy it after editing. You know, it's one you read one way when you're editing something, and you read differently when you're when you're reading purely as a reader. But I really am just struck by how everyone everyone has a different approach to writing, and there's not one right way to do something. But you can really get some some words of wisdom if you're stuck in a novel and you don't know where it's going. I really like looking at that book and seeing what other writers have to tell me. Vendel Lavida is the author of The Believer Book of Writers Talking to Writers and Girls on the Verge. Her new novel is The Lovers. She'll be appearing at Bookshop Santa Cruz Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. and I'll be speaking with her more then. Thank you for joining me, Vendela. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.